0: We're blessed to be here again today studying the Word of God. Will you please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20? Matthew 20, and let us show our gratitude to God by looking carefully at the passage today, studying His Word and how it applies to our lives. You know, every single sermon that I preach, there is some facet of the gospel news. Sometimes it's a little smaller, sometimes it's a little remote or nuanced. Other times, like in our passage today, it is abundantly clear and very direct, so clear that I can't pass it up. In our study of Matthew last week, we learned that this story, the story of the healing of these blind men in the context of Matthew's gospel is in the context of Jesus teaching his followers the way of the cross. Remember last week, he was teaching them that in our era, in our time, following Jesus is not about power and dominion and authority and belongings or politics. It is about humility and service. And so as a demonstration of His service to all, uh, really a picture of what He would do in just a week's time, Matthew tells us the story of Jesus healing these two blind fellows outside the city of Jericho. Well, that story, story of these Blind men, not only thematically and chronologically, falls in place here. We saw even linguistically it, it ties this all together. The mother of James and John came to Jesus asking a question. Jesus asked, what do you want? And what does she want? She wants glory. She wants some sort of political dominion. She wants some sort of fame for her sons. And then he asked these men, these blind beggars, what do you want? And what do they want? They want mercy. They simply want healing from the one they know who has the power to heal. All that to say, Matthew's inspired primary context or primary reason he put this story of the blind beggars here is to demonstrate that Jesus came to, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, we could just leave it at that. We could just move on to chapter 21 and study the triumphal entry, but I can't because here in this story... The story of these blind men is such a plain presentation of the gospel. I've got to pause and make a point of it, not just a remote fact, not just some sort of sidebar here. This is a beautiful story of gospel salvation. Maybe you're even wondering in your own own heart, what must I do to be saved? What is it to become a genuine Christian, maybe you think you're saved. Maybe you came here believing yourself to be a genuine believer of Christ, but perhaps down deep inside you know that you are not genuine. You know that there's not truth there. You know it's not true faith. Maybe you've gone through the motions and you've gone through the process of quote-unquote becoming a Christian, but you need the message of salvation. Now, we're going to talk about salvation. You hear words like this, salvation or being saved, being born again, becoming a Christian. These all refer to the same person. Being born again is that work that the Holy Spirit does on your heart prior to the moment of repentance and faith. God does something in your heart. He regenerates your your spirit, your soul. He does that by the work of the Holy Spirit. This is being born again, regeneration. This compels you then to turn to Christ and your eyes are open to the truth of the gospel and you believe the gospel. You become a Christ follower, a Christian, and you are saved from God's wrath against you for your sin. So these terms, I'm going to use these terms about being saved or becoming a genuine Christian or being born again, it's all referring to the same person. Maybe different aspects of salvation, but it's all referring to the same person. Someone who's born again is a Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian who's not been born again. Now, there are a lot of people who are culturally Christian. There's a lot of people who call themselves Christians that have never truly been born again. But in terms of Scripture, a Christian is a Christ follower. And a Christ follower is someone who's genuinely had faith, repented of their sins, and followed after Christ. They are Christian. They have Decided in their hearts they're going to follow after Christ. And, of course, it means their eternity is sealed. They are saved from God's wrath against sin. Now, this is a story about sight for the blind, and this is not just sight for the physically blind, but what we're going to see here is sight for the spiritually blind. Let's read this passage. I'm going to begin in Matthew 20, verse 29, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. Familiar story. That's important for us to study nonetheless. Verse 29 of Matthew 20. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. Behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. God bless the reading of his Word. If you were to come to me and ask, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to have eternal life? My answer would not be to give you some sort of formula in order to get to heaven. Do this, do that, believe this, believe that, get baptized, and you're in. I would want to work with you. I would want to talk with you. I'd want to spend some time with you. To figure out, first of all, do you really desire to follow after Jesus? Or are you simply coming to organize religion? Or maybe you're trying to get uh, eternal life insurance. Or maybe you're enamored with the church. You've made some friends. You've, you see the excitement and the joy and the singing, and, and you're sort of drawn in by that. And you're just wanting to be like everyone else around you. Or are you truly coming to Jesus? i also want to discover, if you're coming to Jesus, acknowledging your condition without him. And this is really what makes the gospel great news, isn't it? The person and work of Jesus, that, that, that is not good news unless you understand what you are without Jesus. It, it's not good news, for instance, for someone who thinks Jesus is, is here just to make me a more moral person. Or that, or that Jesus perhaps... Include Jesus in your life and and you'll find healing or wealth or some sort of physical prosperity. That's not great news. That's not wonderful eternal news. People who are being saved are desperate. I would want to see that in your heart. If you said you wanted to be saved, I would want to see that you are desperate. You are cowering under the conviction of sin. You are convicted. You are convinced that God would be right and good and even loving to damn you forever for your sin. If you understand that, then you believe that. And finally, I would want to know if you're coming to Jesus understanding Him, understanding the gospel and believing in these things, believing in what Christ accomplished in His life, in His death, in His resurrection. I'd want to know that you believe in His life and death and resurrection. These are massive truths, not just history hinges on, but your, your entire life hinges on, that you are making that the centerpiece of who you are. Now, I can never really know anybody's heart. I can't read people's souls. I can't see the condition of a person's spirit. I can never give you assurance. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. But if you were to say to me that you urgently want to come to Jesus, believing in what the Bible tells you about who you are without Him and who Jesus really is, then I can tell you that at least from my perspective, God has saved you. You're a genuine Christian. You've become a child of God and are saved from His wrath. Well, this story, the story of the blind beggars in Jericho, I believe to be one of the purest illustrations of the progression of people getting saved. So what I'd like to do this morning is get into the details. We're going to spend some time just sort of retelling the story. There's a lot about these stories, especially uh, you're reading these things from the Bible, that because we're 2,000 years removed from things that happen, it takes some time for us in the 21st century to get back in that situation, to, to feel what it's like and to understand the words and the language and the people, that, the things that were happening then. And so I'd like to do that this morning. I'd like to spend some time just telling the story. I've done this before. When it comes to narrative in the Bible, to spend some time just burying ourselves in the details of the story. And then at the end, I'd like to make a couple of points of application. So we're going to spend some time, really no notes for some time, unless you want to uh, write things down. Just no notes for a while as we just learn about this story. It says there that Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho. And I think the best way to interpret this, as you look at all the different gospel accounts, is they were leaving probably old Jericho or the old portion of Jericho, perhaps even moving into the main part of the, uh, the city or the business part of the city. If you uh, did any kind of archaeological study, you realize that a lot of these old cities would have the old part. Even Jerusalem has this, the old city where the old walls are, and you can sort of move from that old part, which would be very small and compact, into the newer area where all the business and things were taking place. So it's likely that if you compare the Gospels, just for those of you who would go back and read the different Gospel accounts, it's likely that that's what was happening here. Jesus was leaving old Jericho, moving into new Jericho, and uh, drawing near to that, that city center the, the new Jericho. This helps us understand, like I said, some of the other phrasing in the words that uh, other gospel writers say luke says for instance jesus is coming to the come near part of jericho that doesn't make anything clear for us in our english uh, but i think it helps us understand what was happening jesus was drawing to the city center which was outside of the old part and he was leaving that part and coming to the new part this is at any rate this is all a part of jericho it's all in the vicinity of jericho His disciples are there the great crowd Of course, we explained last week, you know that they're all there because they're all making their way. That week is going to be Passover. And so there are massive crowds moving from all over the country through Jericho and then up the mountains into Jerusalem. They would have all been there, and Jesus was in the middle of it all with his disciples. And that's verse 29, you see there. They went out of Jericho, I believe that means out of the the old formal city of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. Verse 30, And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, again, when you read the other gospel accounts, you know what happens in a little more detail. What happens in more detail is that there was one of these two guys that was sort of the spokesperson, He was the more outspoken person, and Mark, in his sort of hurried way of writing his gospel, he just sort of focuses on that one guy, and that's a fellow by the name of Bartimaeus. Blind Bart, you could call him. Sounds like a guy in an old spaghetti western. Tell him Blind Bart sent you. Blind Bart, a beggar, is outside the city, the old city of Jericho. But Bart was accompanied with a friend another blind man, and they were there calling out to Jesus together. Here's this beggar, Bartimaeus, with his friend. Perhaps even other sick people are around. He's sitting there by the roadside. Jesus is walking by. You can imagine that uh, blind Bart, the beggar, would have positioned himself in a place, perhaps at at a gate or someplace where there would be a lot of traffic. Beggars do that even to this day, right? They find a place where there's going to be a lot of people, a place where they can collect as much money as possible. It's a high-traffic area. So Jesus is is going perhaps through a gate. He's going through a a little way where lots of people are there, and there is blind Bart and his other blind friend there begging. Now, the thing that identified Bartimaeus and his friend is not just that they were blind. I think the blind and sick were everywhere, especially at gates and roads and entrances like they were. The thing that distinguished them is that they were crying out. They were calling out. Verse 30, they cried out, Lord, have mercy. Now, this is pretty astonishing. Bart, the blind beggar, had better theology than a lot of people in Israel. Certainly better than the leaders of Israel. He and his friend cry out with a loud voice and identify Jesus In fact, again, Mark has a longer account. They they begin by calling him Jesus. Jesus is given name. Of course, this was a common name in Israel. The Lord saves. Joshua in the Hebrew, Anglicanized Hebrew. They call him Jesus, then they say, Lord. They call him Lord. Now, listen carefully. I doubt they had some sort of thoroughgoing uh, doctrine of the Trinity, But clearly they believed some level of truth about the authority and the deity of Christ. Again, this was not some well-thought-out doctrine, but they had come to believe in the truth of who Jesus was, in his divinity, in his authority over those things that are spiritual, enough to call him Lord. The analogous Hebrew word would be Adonai. And they cry out, Lord! They knew he had the power to heal. They knew he had the authority to forgive sins. They knew this man was the one who had divine power. Lord, they call him. Then they say, have mercy on us. No, they're not angry. They're not defensive. They're not saying, why did you make life like this for me? If you're God of the universe, why aren't you benevolent? I expect you to be benevolent to me at all times. There's no anger there. They cry out, have mercy on us. Interesting to note that they do not say, I need grace. Grace is definitely something they needed and wanted. Grace is defined as receiving a gift that you don't deserve, and that would have been perfectly right for them to call out for grace. But they say instead, have mercy. Mercy is not receiving the judgment that you do deserve. These men seem to understand that their plight was... Deserved, or at least part of the curse that man deserves on earth. They, they seem to understand their plight, their blindness was in essence tied to the curse on humanity. Not necessarily that they had sinned, perhaps they have, we don't know that, but sin's not always the thing that leads directly to things like blindness or sickness. But this is to say they knew that they really deserved, they really deserved... God's punishment. They deserve the hardship of a cursed world. Listen, before you can be saved, you must come to that point where you know what you deserve. You know that you deserve eternal punishment. Well, that's right where these two blind beggars were in terms of their belief about themselves and of Jesus. What else do they say? Jesus, Lord... Have mercy on us, son of David. Now, this is amazing that they would call him son of David, isn't it? You have to go back into the minds of the Jews then. Everyone would have been familiar, every faithful Jew in that day was familiar with uh, the covenants, the Old Testament covenants, the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, Abrahamic, and the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God made with David promising that his son would be the Messiah. And the word son there could also mean descendant. His his descendant would be the Messiah. So all of Israel believed that the Messiah would be a descendant, a son of David. In essence, these men are saying, We recognize that you are the promised Messiah. You're the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures. You're the one to whom we saw, we looked to from the very beginning at the very first sin when there was that very first covenant and that very first promise that there would be an offspring. And as you began to, God, as you began to reveal to us who this person would be, we realized it would be an offspring of King David. And we recognize this man, Jesus of Nazareth, to be the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, these men are saying exactly what Peter did in his confession. You are the Christ, which is a Greek word for Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, the way that the Spirit revealed this to Peter's heart, who revealed it to these men's heart? The Spirit. The Spirit opened up their eyes. The Spirit opened up their own souls to understand this, not just from an intellectual or theological way, they understood this in their heart. This is my Messiah. This is the Christ. This is the Son of David. These blind beggars shout out their belief in who they are, what they need, who Christ really is. It's a profound confession of the identity of Jesus. Jesus, Messiah. Verse 31 just to show you that not everybody shared in this belief the people began rebuking the men at this point. Of course, they probably think if they believed like most people did in that day, they probably believe that these men did something wrong in order to receive this kind of punishment from God. This blindness must have been some sort of sin, and so they should be neglected and left to wallow in their own demise of blindness. So in their minds, these men don't deserve to be around Jesus. They don't deserve to be healed. They don't deserve to have any kind of mercy. And so they began to rebuke these men. This does not stop the blind fellows. They shout all the louder. into verse 31, they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They are desperately, urgently, coming to Jesus and they have arrived at some essential conclusions some convictions that their life was terrible that they deserve not kindness from God but wrath from God and so they need mercy from that wrath and they had come to believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the son of God was the promised son of David the Messiah and so therefore he is the only one who could save them from their plight How does Jesus respond? Verse 32. And stopping, Jesus called to them and said, What do you want me to do for you? Jesus stopped. What a beautiful picture of the love of Christ, the compassion of God. He stopped. He stooped. And here's Jesus, He is in the middle of doing something that is cosmically profound. I mean, he is headed to Jerusalem to go to the cross to atone for sin, to become the ultimate sacrifice pictured from Adam to Moses and beyond. This is the most important mission of all time for any human anywhere. And yet, he stopped. And let me say something, if you see your plight, your spiritual plight, like these blind men did, and you cry out to God... Have mercy. Jesus, I believe you. You are Messiah God, and you're the only one. I need your mercy. He will stop. He'll stoop, and he'll save you. It says Jesus called them. So, obviously, he wasn't standing right next to them. He calls them. Maybe they're standing a little bit away. He hears them. He stops. He looks at them. He calls to them. Interesting, the give and take here. When did God actually start calling these men? Well, it had to have happened before Jesus even came to Jericho. God had to have been working on their hearts, working on their minds, began to convince them of the truths of who Jesus was. And long before this happened, the Spirit was revealing the nature of Jesus to their hearts and putting, them, putting in their hearts a conviction about who Jesus was. They were drawn to Jesus, John 6, no one can come unless God draws him. So we see in this passage both the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility. God draws them, reveals truth to them. They respond by crying out to Jesus, seizing that opportunity. Jesus calls to them then and tells them to come to him. And I love what Mark tells us about what Bartimaeus does at this point. It says that he threw off his cloak. This would have been a beggar's cloak. threw off his cloak, sprang up, and came to Jesus. You realize he's still blind at this point. So this man, still blind, throws off his cloak and starts running in the sound of Jesus' voice. What a beautiful picture. That's an eager disciple. Throws off his beggar cloak, just runs in the direction of Jesus. I don't think anyone helped them. They're still blind here, and I think Jesus would have uh, take a great. I think it would have taken a great deal of emotion on Jesus and their part coming together, this, this unification. These guys take off running. They're so excited. What a great picture, I think, of true discipleship. God had so moved them. God had so convicted them, convicted them so moved them through their lives and, and brought this to their lives so that they would finally really see. I mean, these guys saw, though they were blind, what no one else could see, who Jesus really was. And when it was time for them to run to Jesus, they dropped everything. They Ran, even though they were still blind, running to the voice of their Savior. What does Jesus say then? What do you want me to do for you? Every turn here, this story is great. Jesus and everyone else knows what these men want. They want to be healed of their blindness. But Jesus, again, wants them to express their need, their position, their desire for mercy. They reply, Lord, again, using that word. Mark adds the title, teacher, rabbi let our eyes be opened. Verse 33. Verse 34, and Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and what? They followed him. Mark tells us also what Jesus said to them at this point. He says, your faith has made you well. And Jesus detects there's more going on than just physical healing. He says, your faith has made you well. And he doesn't say, your faith has healed you. There is a phrase, a Greek phrase for that. Yeah, oh my. Jesus could have said your faith has healed you, but he doesn't say that. What does Jesus say? Your faith has what? Saved you. That's the phrase he uses. Your faith has saved you. Now, we've made note of this before in our study of Matthew. We've noticed that faith is not always present when there's physical healing. Jesus heals people who have no faith in him. Think about the ten lepers, only one return, right? Jesus healed people even though they had no desire to follow him, no love for him. They just wanted something from him. He fed thousands of people on more than one occasion. You imagine among those thousands there are many people who had no faith in Christ, did not believe in Christ, did not follow Christ. They just were benefits of being around Christ. We've noted that faith is not always present when there's physical healing. Dead people don't have faith, by the way. Demon possessed people don't have faith. Other people come to Jesus because they want food, like I said, or healing. And Jesus, just in his mercy, gives them to them. So faith is not always necessary for healing, but faith is always necessary for justification, for salvation. So when he says, "Your faith has saved you," I believe he's not talking now about their physical well-being. He's talking about their spirits. They have turned to Christ. They've publicly professed Christ, they acknowledge who He is, they believe who, they acknowledge who they are, and they come running to Christ, and he says, "Your faith has saved you." This is not just some blind, illogical leap. No, they have the history, they had the doctrine, they had the truths of Scripture. They have the evidence now. And Jesus is indeed who he says he was. Their faith came actually before the miracle came. That's the opposite of what a lot of people want. Give me a miracle, then I'll have faith. They had faith before. Faith is a gift from God, lest any man should boast. These men had been given that gift, and they were just waiting for the Redeemer to arrive. Jesus shows up, they cry out, and they run to him professing, believing in their desperate condition and in the only Savior, Jesus Christ. They are saved, healed physically. And we made note of it already. What does it say? After they're saved, they followed Jesus. If there's a more pure, tender picture of what happens in salvation. I don't know where it is. These men live in the depths and the effects of sin and the cursed world, living there in the mire of poverty, clothed with something else, clothed with, with filth and the, the sign of their destitution. God illuminates their hearts. He changes their hearts. He awakens their spirit. They believe in their own condition, their own need. They understand that, and they understand that that need can only be met by a Savior The Savior shows up and they cry out their profession. Lord Jesus, Son of David, Messiah, we have faith. Save us. That's precisely what Jesus does. He stops, he stoops, he saves them, forgives their sin. What a picture. What a story. I like to imagine that these men went on and saw the triumphal entry, which happened just moments from here. Since they followed Jesus, they I imagine they followed him all the way to Bethany, the suburb of Jerusalem, and were there at the triumphal in, 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 entry. Perhaps even followed Jesus all the way to the cross. You know, uh, academia sort of debates uh, why they name Bartimaeus here. I like to think that the early Christians knew this man. Maybe they put him in here because the Christians, the early Christians there who were around when Matthew was putting his gospel together, knew the son of Timaeus, Bar-Timaeus. They knew that guy. Oh, that's how Bartimaeus. Well, that's why he's so passionate. That's who that guy is. He loves Jesus. He's so passionate about the things of God. Now I know why. This is when he was saved. He was once a dejected, despised beggar at the gate of Jericho. But Jesus stopped, and he stooped, and he saved him. Well, this is the application. I want to make a couple of points this morning. What must you do to be saved? What must you do to inherit eternal life first? Come to Jesus believing who you are. Come to Jesus believing who you are. Now, listen carefully. I'm not saying believe in yourself. I almost hesitated making this point because we live in a society where this stupid, tired old trope of American psychotherapy has just gone everywhere, even into churches. When you say believing who you are, most people think, oh, believing that I'm good, I'm talented, I'm, I'm gifted, I'm a nice person. But that's not what I mean, and it's not what is depicted here in this passage. Without Jesus, you are a blind, helpless beggar. Oh, you might have physical money. You might have some fulfillments or accomplishments. You might have some list of good things in your life. You may not feel destitute and desperate. You may feel that everything's fine in your life, but spiritually speaking, you are blind. You are a dead fish at the bottom of the ocean. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. All of us are guilty of about half of that list. They don't tell me you're down deep inside, you're good. What you've done sinfully really is not a reflection of who you really are. You really are down deep inside good. Now no, that's that's what politicians say, right? They do something stupid, they get caught, and they say, "Well, that's not really who I am." Well, actually, the opposite is true. That is really who you are. This sin is just a reflection of what you are down deep inside, and you may be able to cover it up for everybody, even your spouse. The reason you sin is because you are, at your heart, a sinner. Jeremiah 79, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart is evil only continually from childhood, it says. Parents, you ever take your kids to the side and sit them down for a special lesson on sinning? No, they just do it. Not to ever teach him about sin, why? Because it's just natural. We're dead in sin. Peter said in Second 2 Peter 2:19, 2, we're slaves to sin. John says in 8, John 8:34, 8, whoever commits a sin is a slave to sin. Paul says, we're sold like slaves under sin." Paul went on to say in Ephesians chapter two verse three, that before Christ, before you're saved, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. On top of all this, not only are we spiritually dead without Christ, not only are we spiritually blind without Christ, on top of all that, we're unable to change our spiritual status. We can't just dig deep down in our hearts and pull ourselves out. I read this week uh, the origin of that phrase, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. We use it in a sort of positive way now to talk about someone who really works hard and just, you know, work, digs down deep and does, accomplishes something. They pull themselves up by their bootstrap. But you know that the origin of that phrase is actually negative. It's an, it's an irony. And it was saying no one can actually do that. And they were talking about hopping over a fence. You can't just reach down, lift up on your bootstraps, and hop yourself over a large gate, a large fence. It's impossible. It's an irony. It's a humorous irony. But now we use it in terms of something positive. Well, he just pulled himself up by his bootstraps. That can't happen. And that can't happen spiritually speaking either. You can't just pull yourself out of death. If you're dead, you can do nothing. You can't heal yourself. If these men could heal themselves, they would have healed themselves a long time ago. They're blind. They're beggars. They're helpless. They're destitute. Jeremiah said, can a leopard change his spots? Neither can you who are accustomed to sinning change your heart. Romans 8, 7 says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Titus 1, 15 to 16, To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So to become a Christian is to come... First of all, to the sober, willing acknowledgment and agreement, we call this confession, that you are indeed what God says you are without Christ, dead in the trespasses of your sin. That you are lost, that you are blind, that you are paralytic, that you are leprous of heart. You are spiritually dead, and only God's Spirit in His mercy can make you alive. This is what Jesus told Nicodemus, You must be born again. What do I have to do? Nicodemus asks. Jesus says you can't do anything. The Spirit has to do something on your heart to make you alive. You can't control the Spirit of God. Now, the good news is if you've come to this belief, if you've come to this agreement, this confession, it is likely that the Spirit is working in your heart and making you alive to these things. But the message of the gospel is, begins with this truth. It is not great news. I said this earlier. It's not great news. It is not gospel if you don't see your need for Him. These blind beggars, if they felt they could get along fine without Jesus, they would never have cried out. They would never have shouted. They would never have thrown off their cloaks and run blindly to the sound of Jesus' voice, and they would never have have been healed. It all began with an understanding of their own condition Come to Jesus believing who you are first. Again, that's not about your potential or your gifts or your talents or your spiritual accomplishments. It is agreeing with God that you are utterly helpless and dead in sin. Again, the good news is if you're coming to that confession, if you're coming to that acknowledgement, it is likely the Spirit is already at work in your heart. the great news is if you follow up with faith in Christ then you will be saved. Well, that brings us to point of application number two. Come to Jesus believing who He is. English teachers, maybe we should say whom on both these points. I don't know. Why do you come to Jesus? Because it is He and He alone who provides. He provides first the payment for your sin. He provides the imputation of His righteousness upon you so that you stand before God justified, not in your own righteousness, but covered in His righteousness. And He provides, thirdly, the life that you want, eternal life, life in communion with God. You become a child of God, communing with God for eternity. In the very first sin, we see that the penalty of sin, the wages of sin is death. It's separation, eternal separation from God. There is punishment. There is blood right there in Genesis 3. There's that sin, and there is blood because of that sin. There is death, that first sacrifice, blood spilled. And then we see this all throughout the Old Testament, sacrifice for sin over and over and over throughout the Old Testament. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. What if there could be a final sacrifice, something, some blood that could atone for sin once for all. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he knew that that is why Jesus had come, and that's why he cried out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul says in Romans 6, Jesus died once for all. And Paul goes on to give that Romans 6, that wonderful one-verse presentation of the gospel, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Interesting, when I type that verse in my word processor, namely that phrase, free gift, my word processor highlighted it as a grammatical error. Why? Because to say something as a free gift is redundant. A gift is not a gift if it's not free, and yet... All false religions, including things like Catholicism and Mormonism that proclaim to be Christian, all of them teach that grace, God's grace, God's kindness, what Christ did, is not a gift. It is something you earn. These men knew it's something they couldn't earn. They had no ability to earn it. That's why they're beggars. Martin Luther, as he was dying, scribbled out on a little piece of paper, At some point, no one saw him do it, but at some point he scribbled this out, set it on that piece of paper, and on the nightstand, we are all beggars. This much is true. We come to Jesus as these beggars did. We don't deserve his grace. We don't deserve his mercy, and we know it. We need a gift of grace. We need a gift of mercy. We're not coming to Jesus for him to pay our wages, to pay our salary. Give me what I deserve. Look what I did for you. We need that gift. We need that grace. We need that mercy. We deserve punishment and death. And so we come to Jesus as the man we heard about at the beginning of the message, beating our chests, crying out for mercy. Why? Because we believe in Jesus and His person. that He is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of David, and His, His work, His actions here on earth and in His person, His perfect life, His death, His resurrection, He provides for us what we could never, on our own, we could never earn, righteous perfection covering us, payment for sin, eternal life, not apart from God, but with God in communion forever. Now, I told you at the beginning, this passage is a simple presentation of the gospel. What must you do to be saved? Do as these blind beggars did. Come to Jesus believing who you are and believing who He is. Let's pray. Father, I do pray for those in this room right now who are battling in their own hearts, perhaps even arguing with You in their own minds whether or not they are true believers, and we pray that they would just relent and repent and agree with You about who they really are. And in the same motion, Lord, give them This desire to throw off their old beggar's cloak, trusting in Jesus, running to him and following him. Lord, give them the desire to do this even now. Lord, that we know that there's no ritual, there's no hoop they have to jump through sacramentally or with the church simply can sit where they are and cry out, Lord, be merciful to me, a beggar who needs a Messiah. Give them the desire to worship Jesus. And all of us, Lord, as we study this passage, help us to live in this truth. Lord, we saw this, that our our lives must hinge on these truths. This is not just some way we got to heaven and forgot about it and left it to the side. Lord, this becomes the very definition of who we are. These truths define us. We truly become Christians. We are Christ-like. We become little Jesuses. We want to be like Him. We want to follow Him. We want to look to Him, knowing that one day we'll be like Him. We'll be made eternal. And rejoice before Your throne as He is even now. So, Lord, we want this to define our lives. And, Lord, maybe this even helps us as we think about sharing Christ with others. These two simple truths encourage us to take these things to people, these truths to people, until the day you come. Bless us now as we try to live a life trusting in Jesus Christ alone. We ask this in His name. Amen. All right, stand with me, if you will, for some benediction. Now may we go with the confidence that God has not remembered our sins against us, but has helped us in our time of need, atoning for our sin and giving us eternal life. Amen.